When was the last time you thought, I can't wait to get to the point in my life when fill in the blank? Now, lately, it's been a constant drone in our home, especially for our youngest, Hudson, who at three years old is endlessly frustrated that he can't do everything his big sister can. You know, he can't wait till he no longer has to wear a pull-up to bed like his big sister. He can't wait till he can use a needle to sew like his big sister or eat rice with chopsticks like his big sister. And he can't wait till he can ride a horse without mom holding the reins like his big sister. You know, when we're young, we all feel like Hudson. We can't wait until we're old enough to drive or old enough to date, old enough to get a job and move out. But this feeling doesn't fully leave us as we get older. At 43, I still feel this way. You know, I can't wait till my mortgage is paid off or until all my kids can wipe their own bums, until all our renovations are finished or I can begin to imagine retirement. I can't wait till I no longer feel like all my musician friends are better than I am. But whether we're raising our kids or just trying to figure out how to be adults ourselves, we all share some basic ideas about what being a real grown-up looks like. You know, it's about attaining some level of mastery and control, acquiring a certain level of ownership and possessions, and achieving a level of independence and self-reliance. This is what we want for our kids and for ourselves, and lately I've been realizing that I think we often apply this same definition of maturity to our spiritual lives. You know, it's like when we, we're starting out, we don't know how to pray and we have no Bible knowledge and we need lots of help to help us control the sin that seems to dominate our lives. But, but by the time we become spiritually mature, we've mastered the art of prayer. We've acquired cover to cover chapter and verse Bible knowledge and we no longer need to depend on others to manage our sin. At least that's what it's supposed to look like, right? But what if I told you that that is the exact opposite? of how Jesus describes what it looks like to become a spiritual grown-up. Jesus' closest friend was his disciple John, who in his biographical account in the Bible describes a conversation between Jesus and Peter, one of the leaders on whom Jesus said he would build the church. And envisioning Peter's influential trajectory, listen to how Jesus describes his future. He says, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. According to Jesus, maturing in our faith is not about attaining, acquiring, and achieving some level of control, ownership, and independence. Those are actually the qualities of spiritual adolescence. Becoming a spiritual adult is actually about embracing surrender, sacrifice, and submission. It's about being willing to be led to places we don't want to go. Now, I wonder how many of you have felt in this recent message series like we've been being led to places we don't want to go. You know, in week one, we discovered that while all people are created equal, some of us and those often considered to be the least can actually reveal the nature of God better than others, according to Jesus. Then two weeks ago, we learned that while all are needed in the body of Christ, the Bible says that some are needed more than others. And in fact, they're the very ones who were often tempted to undervalue. Then last week, we declared that all are welcome, but that according to Jesus, some are more welcome than others, specifically those who often feel the most unwelcome. And throughout this series, we've invited people who've been devalued, marginalized, and excluded because of things like race or disability or sexual orientation to be honest with us about their experience. And it's been uncomfortable, to say the least. But what if, as Julia Chickenbarrow said in the first week, being uncomfortable 
being led to places we don't want to go, to stare at realities we don't want to see, and own up to behaviors we don't want to change, is exactly what Jesus wants for us. What if maturity means being led to the very last place any of us would choose to go? Because that's exactly how John explains what Jesus meant in his conversation with Peter. He goes on to say that Jesus said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. History tells us that Peter did in fact follow Jesus in death by being crucified. But Jesus' words here are not meant only to be understood as a prediction about Peter. They're a summary of the invitation of Jesus for all of us to follow him. As the Apostle Paul says, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, follow Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. And when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see Jesus selflessly relinquishing every last drop of power and privilege for the benefit of others. Now, first relinquishing his status as God to become human, then sacrificing the dignity of humanity for the degrading life of a slave. He then lays down that life and ultimately embraces the shame and humiliation of being crucified as a common criminal and failed revolutionary. Now, to be clear, Jesus too was being led to a place he didn't want to go. We're told that the cross made Jesus so anxious that his sweat became like drops of blood as he begged God for another way. But he rejected the way of comfort and privilege and instead chose the way of discomfort and sacrifice, the way of the cross. And he invites Peter and us to do the same. Now, I assume most of us would say that we want to follow Jesus, but do we? I mean, do I really want to follow Jesus in the way of the cross? I mean, if I'm fully honest, I haven't relinquished my power and privilege like Jesus. I've relied on it intentionally and unintentionally. Like many of you, my life demonstrates the subconscious belief that my faith should provide me and my family with certain benefits and advantages, a certain level of comfort and security. Faith isn't seen as something that's meant to dispossess us of those advantages, but to reinforce and solidify them, to help me gain mastery, possession, and independence, and to center me and my experience. You see this in how, like many of you, I tend to flock together with birds whose feathers are the same color as mine. I listen to worship songs and sermons and podcasts that connect emotionally with my reality, not ones that push me to orient my life around someone else's. I get involved in programs that give me the chance to use my gifts, not the hidden thankless ones that require more time and effort than I really want to give. You know, we like the social media posts we agree with and block the posters whose views offend us, creating this like algorithmic echo chamber that reinforces our ways of thinking and makes us wonder why some people just don't seem to get it. And we give to the level of our comfort, but not the level of our capacity. And we're drawn to environments that validate our desire for upward mobility, not ones that demand that we sacrifice our advancement to see others move up. I mean, sure, we've loved our neighbor, but not as much as we've loved ourselves. You know, we act as though everyone should care about the issues that affect us, but we don't take the time to learn about issues that we don't think matter, simply because they don't matter to us. I think if most of us were to be completely candid, we'd admit that when we think of an all-inclusive faith, we're more drawn to the kind of all-inclusive resort kind of faith that prioritizes and pampers me 
than to the kind that means I've got to move out of the way to make room for someone else's experience or prioritize someone else's contribution or even listen to someone else's voice. You know, unlike the Jesus we claim to follow, we don't curse power and privilege. We cling to it, even convincing ourselves somehow that it's a sign of God's blessing. All this has led to what I refer to as Christian supremacy, a belief that God made the world and all its bounty to benefit and revolve around us, seeing our privilege as some sort of spiritual birthright. And the result has been, as Mike said last week, a church where Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour of the week, where Christians are known for our politics more than our love, claiming to be some kind of moral majority while trampling the rights, denying the dignity, and ignoring the voices of black, indigenous, and people of color. We use phrases like, come as you are, but then we belittle those attempting to transition into a truer version of themselves. We quote Jesus who said, I came not for the healthy, but the sick. But then we ignore and avoid people with developmental disabilities, individuals on the autism spectrum, or those who struggle with mental health. This isn't what following Jesus looks like. The church isn't meant to be a club for people with wealth, talent, business acumen, stage presence, people from traditional families who look like us and don't make us too uncomfortable. It doesn't exist to cater to the already initiated and accepted. It's the opposite. The church, I mean, we, not the organization, but all of us individually and together as people, we exist not to serve ourselves, but to care for those who have nothing, the poor, the sick, the outcast and abandoned. The earliest churches were communities built not around the haves, but the have-nots, led by day laborers, social and literal lepers, women, singles, the poor, disabled, and the sexually scandalized. Upon the very people that the religious elite despised, Christ built his church. And God was able to do this because those earliest followers understood that this is what spiritual maturity looks like. This is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. I'm currently reading a book that challenges readers to identify their own privilege, and it's helped me for the first time see with clarity the privilege that comes with being a first century white in a predominantly white region, straight, married, cisgendered, male, child fathering, intelligent, you could probably debate that one, educated, employed, wealthy, middle-aged, able-bodied, neurotypical, addiction-free, healthy, land-owning, landlording, first-world-dwelling, passport-holding, Christian in a predominantly Christian society, natural-born citizen of the country in which I live from an intact, living, middle-class, nuclear family with almost unlimited community support and no criminal record. On top of all this, I realized I began by showing a video of my daughter riding her own pony. Cue the Seinfeld reference. So what I'm about to say applies first and most to me. To the privileged like me, equality can feel like oppression because we're not used to it. But it's not. We with privilege must learn to decenter ourselves in order to prioritize those who've been and are still being deprioritized by society and the church. To learn that privilege isn't something good to be shared. It's something harmful to be dismantled. That's why we can't think of diversity as an act of charity, like, you know, giving a little bit of our power and privilege away to those in need. But as an act of discipleship, 
without which we will never experience the fullness of God's kingdom. Now, if that wasn't clear enough, I'll say it again. We live in a system that offers advantages and privileges to people based on our whiteness, our straightness, maleness, neurotypicalness, able-bodiedness, and other superficial characteristics, even our Christianity. This is the very systemic injustice Christ died in part to dismantle. And I'm not saying that whiteness or straightness or maleness are bad. I mean, they're not, and they're also ways that God's image is revealed. But anyway, these unearned qualities make life easier on us or better for us at the expense of others is an example of injustice and is harmful to the furthering of God's kingdom. The only way to deal with them is to become aware of them, address them honestly, and nail them to the cross with Christ. I know how overwhelming all this sounds, but imagine how good it could be. Imagine a church where everyone can see someone who looks like them on our screens and stages and at all levels of leadership, where we run our highest quality programming for kids with Down syndrome, autism, or cerebral palsy in a way that is fully accessible to everybody. Imagine letting God show us what it looks like to make amends with our indigenous siblings and then being led by them in things like peacemaking or slow listening and creation care. Imagine the black people around us no longer, no longer having to wonder if their lives matter. Imagine doing the hard work of welcoming immigrants, not just into our country, but into our community. Imagine us, us, becoming the people LGBTQ plus individuals feel the safest around, the most loved by, seen not as pariahs, but as prophets of grace and acceptance. Imagine the single and childless in our circles being treated not as anomalies or oddities, but honored as some of our most valued family members. Imagine what we could learn about true family from single parents, adopted children, and parents of blended families if they would be honored as heroes and healers. Imagine instead of mocking millennials, we encouraged and handed over leadership to our youth, not forgetting to be guided and guarded by the wisdom of the elderly among us. Imagine showing hospitality in our words, loving people enough to use the pronouns and labels they choose for themselves. Imagine blessed are the poor being more than just a saying. Imagine following Jesus so closely that every person, no matter what they look like, who they love, how they identify, felt loved, included, and valued. To become a community where outsiders become insiders, foreigners become neighbors, enemies become friends, and strangers become siblings. Where age, gender, race, sexuality, disability, neurodiversity, life stage, lack of education, and financial instability aren't viewed as barriers to realizing God's ideal, but as bridges into a new world that looks a lot more like the every nation, tribe, and tongue, full-spectrum, all-inclusive diversity of God's entire family. If you, like me, want to follow Jesus into that kind of future, it's going to take more than believing, wanting, hoping, or even praying for it. As a black member of Southridge said to me last year at the height of the BLM protests, only doing something does something. We've got to work for it every day and for the rest of our lives, laying down our privilege with Christ. So maybe for you, the first step is more awareness. If so, go back and complete the diversity assessment from week one of this series. Or take time to journal your way through a book like Me and White Supremacy. Or start a conversation with someone who doesn't share your privilege with the sole intention of listening, learning, and being changed. 
Maybe it's time to forge some relationships with individuals on the margins. You can email Nate Dirks, who will help you get involved in one of our anchor causes, not as an act of charity, but to develop friendships that will truly make a difference in you and in them. Or visit the Niagara Regional Native Center when it's open again, or one of the local reserves to see firsthand the impact that our home and native land has had on its first people. Perhaps your next step is to take some concrete action, like doing an audit of your vocabulary, to rid yourself of certain phrases and words that mock and insult people without privilege, like that's lame, or that sucks, or that's crazy, or dozens of other common expressions we may not even realize are dehumanizing. Or perhaps you need to deaccumulate some of your wealth and possessions and redirect them to those who face significant barriers to earning a livable wage. Maybe your next step is one of advocacy, working for more level ground accessibility for people who tend to get excluded on purpose or by accident in the places where you work and play. Maybe and perhaps most importantly of all, maybe you need to get away with God in prayer to listen and be directed by God and what your next step is down the way of the cross. But whatever you do, don't just sit back and agree or disagree. Because at the end of the day, only doing something does something. I don't know about you, but I can't wait until you and I will finally be grown up enough to follow Jesus like that, to become people who maturely trade in our comfort for the cross to be led by God to places we don't want to go, places we haven't even imagined yet, and there discover the unimaginable beauty and diversity of an all-inclusive faith in an all-inclusive God. As we've been doing all series long, we're going to hear now from someone who's been processing what this needs to look like in their life. Here's Ron Dick. Yeah, well, Ron, it's, it's not preferable uh, to be hanging out via video rather than in person, but it's still really great to see you. So would you tell us a, a bit about yourself and how you ended up as a part of our Southridge community? Yeah, I started attending Southridge uh, just at the time that Southridge expanded into multiple locations. Um, I'm now at the Welland location, and, um, um, and it's given us a lot of opportunities in terms of uh, working with the Harvest Kitchen program. In relation to that, uh, even a year ago, uh, you began, began a bit of a new part of your faith journey and can you tell us a bit about what god has been doing in your life uh, since that time started during uh, the initial short-term group that you led we had heard from john johnson and he went on and talked about land and admittedly i got really indignant um it didn't seem right to me that that we should feel responsible for what he was talking about um, as a matter of fact, I felt so strongly and so indignant that um, I began to write you an email. It was at that moment, as I was writing this, I had what I can only describe as an epiphany. Um, the lights kind of went on, and um, I began to see that like their condition or plight, if you will, of the Indigenous people was not unlike my ancestors. And, and, it, and it just really became clear to me that just as the Russian government had oppressed and tried to kill off the Mennonites, so has the white men done to our indigenous people. Why was this an epiphany moment for you and not just uh, something that you learned factually and then kind of moved on from? It wasn't until I tried to defend my callousness towards the indigenous people that it suddenly struck me. Um, there were parallels there. And I have to say, like, it was in that moment that the, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes. And uh, I began to understand that. 
and and it, it just became really real. So how did you then like connect this to your family history in ways that were, that were similar and then that were different from, from your own story? And I guess it differs largely because when the Mennonites left were in Russia, they weren't allowed to worship. But when they came here, they had those freedoms um, and they were allowed to worship as they, they pleased. They carried on their culture and they used their hard work ethic to prosper. Our indigenous neighbors weren't so fortunate. Much of their suffering uh, that our indigenous neighbors experienced was in the name of God, so to speak. Initially, as a result of colonialism, then broken treaties, and up until recently, the social schooling programs, effects of which, you know, are going to continue to haunt them for some time if something isn't done. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a sort of a sense, not just that this just happened, but that we have a that we've had a, a role to play in this and culturally. And Ron, I've heard, you know, I've heard you say that when it comes to the, the broken relationships and, uh, you know, that, that occur, that, that we have here with our Indigenous relatives, that we need to take responsibility. So, like, why is that? When someone is neglected, abused, and, and the various things we talked about, when that happens to a people, the effects, um, they don't just disappear. Like, they remain with the person. They have long-term effects. And, and I think it's obvious that that's what we're seeing in their cultures. We've benefited from this land. We've benefited over time from what this land has to offer. But we couldn't have done that except that we kicked them to the curb. And, it, you know, that brings up that uncomfortable word, privileged. It is a word that can be uncomfortable, obviously. But when you, when you look at this a little closer and you look at what was compromised or what was sacrificed for what we have today, whether your, your ancestors came over on the Mayflower or they landed yesterday, right? Or you came here yesterday. Anybody that lives here is benefiting from this country, the resources that this country has, et cetera. I've talked to people about this and they say, well, you know, the natives lost the war, so let's just get on with it. But that's, the, that's not true, okay? Um, there, were, there was no war and there were no victors. What there were were treaties, promises and covenants that were repeatedly broken. And I appreciate your perspective on that and saying like that that's actually an important identity feature for us, that we need to realize that it's a part of our identity. And if it's a part of our identity that we have like broken treaties as a part of who we are, that's probably something that we actually need to deal with. And not exactly. bypass. That was very well said. Exactly. You can't come here, expect to, you know, appreciate the freedoms that we have and ignore how we got those. So what's, what steps did you take and have you taken over the last year uh, to try to connect and try to, to move things forward? I can only describe that as being willing um, to have your heart changed for, you know, the people, the neighbors, the people around us that are suffering or that are in need. Within that, I know you've also spoken about, you know, your eyes being opened to, to where we find Jesus. And what's your experience of the, the presence of God among our Indigenous uh, neighbors and relatives as that's been uh, growing for you? The Indigenous culture, I think, can teach us a lot about what it means to be Christ-like. Like, we'll stockpile or even hoard food, um, and they're eager to share theirs. They've always taken the, the, um, the stewardship of land seriously, mm. and I'm not sure we can say that. I mean, what would you say to us as a Southridge community when the spirit that we're sometimes exuding is, you know, why well, didn't perpetuate these traumas or against the Indigenous community? Uh, or like, sure, there was a messy past, but, you know, we should all just move on. Or basically, it's not my responsibility. What would you say to us as a community 
uh, when that's kind of what we exude. Okay, so let's, like, for argument's sake, let's let's put aside the privilege that we that we have here in Canada, and let's say that it wasn't at the indigenous expense. That let's say it's not our responsibility. It's not your or my responsibility personally that these treaties were broken. The question that I'm stuck with is, I guess, how are we as Christians then, with good conscience? ignore what is happening to these people today. Think about, you know, what that kind of thinking leads to. If I can absolve myself of responsibility for how my neighbor is suffering, I mean, eventually we're just living in in a society of our very own, let's call it our very own happy, selfish life. Um, like, so what would you say to someone at Southridge who's just awakening to the reality of their privilege or maybe it may be resisting into digging into understanding it. It's in, it's in the doing that we, we receive God's blessings. It's in when we take that step and we're willing to say, okay, I'm willing to venture into this. <laughs> like these problems with the indigenous go deep and they're not going to be resolved easily. And the most important first step would be to say like, okay, Lord, how does my heart need to change in this? Maybe the word privilege isn't so bad. And I can appreciate what it means and how does my heart need to change towards our Indigenous neighbors. And I see you taking that responsibility and I feel challenged by that. And uh, I really appreciate having this conversation and your willingness to, to just be able to share with, with our whole community today. So thanks so much, Ron. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It was great.